Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Let's start with a trigger warning. I went to the dentist this week and it was bad. I needed to have a tooth pulled out. It was a molar that had been troublesome for a while, thanks to a small stone in a salad months before, which had managed to crack not the crown that sat over the remaining remnant of tooth, but the remnant itself. The crack was in the root. When I arrived and slid into that big chair, the dentist said he was going to break the crown in half and remove each root at a time, as though he couldn't care less. Then he was over me with a great needle and I closed my eyes, telling myself the needle was the worst bit, although I had never had a tooth cracked in two and pulled out in pieces, so I couldn't really say. He came back with more needles, and each time he did, the semi-darkness behind my eyelids that the great lamp over the chair was illuminating became a full dark. And on the third needle, when the dark came, a huge and sudden force pushed outwards from my chest, battering at my ribs so I was amazed the dentist wasn't forced back by it. I realised it was my heartbeat, and that I was on the verge of a panic attack, a first ever panic attack, and I thought... That's it. I'm turning into my mother. I'm going to bite the dentist. That's what Mum did, if you'll believe it. This was years ago and a different dentist. She was so terrified that she bit down hard on his finger. So hard she made him bleed and he told her not to come back. Mum had needed many teeth pulled when she was young and in those days you were held down and there was no anaesthetic. And ever since, she had had a terror of dentists that her lifelong problem teeth had ingrained. That day, the day she bit the dentist, something strange happened to her. She wasn't the polite, Tunbridge Wells comes to Belfast version of herself that I knew. She did something that was primitive and feral and wholly protective of herself. Something wild and violent. Do we all have that button somewhere buried in us? I did not inherit Mum's fear of dentists, but I dislike sitting in that big chair under that big lamp, and who doesn't? The week before my appointment, I'd held a grim humour about things, muttering to myself that the long trudge towards old crone continued. I decided that because I could joke, it must not really bother me, which is why it was such a surprise when it did. When the dentist and the dark came for a fourth time, I couldn't tell whether I would scream or vomit or follow the maternal line and attack him. But I could not feel the needle. The numbness was beginning to spread. My heart calmed. I noticed that my hands were crossed in my lap and that my feet also were crossed politely. I was holding myself in. I felt sure that if I didn't, My body would melt onto the floor and nothing would be left on that big chair except my teeth. The dentist began to chip at the crown. Then the drill came out. A deep ache had developed in my jaw and I wondered, did Mum know she was going to bite the dentist right before she did? I complained about the ache and the dentist gave me a piece of black rubber to bite down on. The pain eased. He continued to drill and I bit away to my heart's content. We both waited for the crack. Before it came, 
I had a strange flash of sentimentality for the tooth that had been part of me for over 30 years that I was about to lose. There was a crunching noise, his drill jumped, and I could feel something sitting on my tongue, something the suction tube quickly sucked away. Various metal tools were attempted one by one on the tooth. I had no idea what the dentist was doing, and the worst of it was... I knew he must be pulling, but what I felt in my deeply numbed jaw was that he was pushing down hard. For a second time, a terror flooded me of the noise the tooth would make at the pull. When it came, in the end, there was no noise. I paid the receptionist £100 and went to sit in the bathroom. There was a smudge of blood on my chin and I felt a sudden childlike need to cry. There was only one person I could call. Hey mum, are you free to talk? The distinctive peep-peep call of the oyster catcher was part of the soundtrack of my childhood, growing up on an estuary on the south coast of England, where the birds trotted and poked along the edge of the tide. They're also a common sight near my current home on Galway Bay, feeding busily along the small rocky beaches or standing to attention in twos and threes, facing into the breeze. The oyster catcher's dark, glossy back and white belly gives it a dapper look, accessorised with an orange-red bill which it uses to probe the wet sand for food. The name is a little misleading, as the bird rarely eats oysters. It dines mainly on smaller shellfish like mussels and cockles, prizing them open with its bill or breaking them against rocks. In both Ireland and Scotland, the oyster catcher has an intimate association with St Bridget, one of many connections between the saint and the natural world. Legend tells us that St Bride, as she's known in Scotland, was running away from a group of men who were intent on harming her. Finding herself on a beach with no means of escape, she lay down on the sand, offered up a prayer and prepared to die. Seeing her plight, a flock of oyster catchers ran to her assistance and covered her with seaweed so the men could not find her. Her life was saved, and the oyster catcher became known in Scots Gaelic and sometimes in Irish as Gilly Vija, the servant or messenger of Bridget. Another Scottish story tells of St Bride setting sail from Ireland to the Outer Hebrides with an oyster catcher flying ahead of the boat to show her the way. It is said that she landed in a sandy cove on the island of South Uist, carrying the bird on her wrist. Some years ago, I discovered an unexpected connection to St Bridget in my English home place. It was known that a group of Irish monks founded a small monastery amongst the Saxon people of Sussex in the 7th century, 
led by a man called Dickel. They sailed up the estuary past my family's farm to make landfall on the muddy shore at the top of the creek, where they built a small wooden church. I like to imagine them being welcomed by the local oyster catchers, the birds providing a familiar voice in a place where the people spoke a foreign language. Little else is recorded about Dickel and his brothers, but recent research has shown that they brought Bridget traditions with them. The medieval life of a local saint called Cuthman, presumably educated by Dickel, contains several stories borrowed directly from the lives of St Bridget of Kildare. St Cuthman, like Bridget, could hang his clothes on a sunbeam. Both saints had the ability to control the weather. Bridget stopped a rainstorm damaging a crop and Cuthman called up a squall to punish men who mocked him. Both could make magic circles around their sheep to stop them straying. I decided to celebrate a significant birthday and honour the memory of Dickel and his monks by cycling across Ireland and Wales to the south of England, carrying a Bridget's cross with me. An English friend came to Galway to join us and arrived with a good luck mascot for the journey. It was a small, soft toy in the shape of a bird with black and white plumage and a bright red bill. An oyster catcher, though my friend knew nothing of the bird's association with Bridget. I packed the cross in my saddlebag and attached the bird to my handlebars, its bill pointing to the road ahead. Like the one that guided St Bridget to Scotland, my oyster catcher faithfully showed me and my companions the way and we arrived safely on the familiar Sussex coast. And a Bridget's cross, made of Connemara rushes, now hangs in my home village's old English church, symbolising the link between the two shores where the oyster catchers call. To say I grew disenchanted with Harry the first night we spent together would be an understatement. The honeymoon was over only five minutes after the lights went out. Boy, was he noisy. I thought a district line train had made a detour through the bedsit. Sharing accommodation has its challenges, of course, and it takes two to tangle, so I'm certainly not blameless. If I'd conducted even the most basic research, Harry's nocturnal activities mightn't have come as such a shock. In my defence, he was foisted on me at very short notice by a girlfriend who was moving into new accommodation where, she claimed, Harry was definitely not welcome. Could you please be a dote and look after him? She charmed me. He won't be any trouble. You'd be doing me a big favour. And with a smile that would melt a glacier, I'd be ever so grateful. How could I say no? Relationship therapists 
stress the need for couples to afford each other space. But moving Harry to a separate room wasn't an option. There was only one room. And if bloodshed was to be avoided, a spoke had to be put in his wheel. A wheel that, incidentally, if harnessed to the grid, could have illuminated the entire street. Hamsters are crepuscular, which means they're mostly active at dusk and dawn. Clearly, Harry didn't get the memo, because his spin sessions went on throughout the night. The treadmill had to go. But removing it proved a double-edged solution. My sleep patterns were re-established, but Harry's exercise regime ground to a halt. I couldn't have an obese hamster on my conscience, so at bedtime I allowed him out of his cage to wander about freely. Harmony was restored, and I now awoke every morning refreshed and ready for the day, while Harry, exhausted from his midnight ramblings, snoozed serenely. This peaceful coexistence extended through summer and into autumn. Harry proved to be an amiable companion, and in the evenings as we dined together, I watched fondly as he held food in his tiny paws and nibbled and munched his way through fruit, vegetables, seeds and grains, savouring every bite. Gnawing helps hamsters wear down their teeth and prevent overgrowth. Another detail I was to discover later. As winter approached, I made sure Harry had all he needed to keep warm and cosy. As it turned out, he was more than capable of looking after himself. That summer, my mother had knitted a beautiful iron jumper for me, which I had stored safely in the chest of drawers. One exceptionally chilly morning, the time had come for its first outing. Tugging it over my head, eyes closed, already luxuriating in its warmth, I reached for the sleeve, repeatedly, only to find fresh air each time. There was no sleeve, just the narrow opening through which my head now poked. Further investigation revealed the amputated sleeve lying lifeless in the drawer, its counterpart tethered by a single thread, no doubt in sympathy, succumbed to gravity and dropped silently to the floor. I was dealing with a terminated textile here, and I knew the terminator. A chilly breeze ruffled Harry's fur as I ushered him out the back door. And I left for college consoling myself that he was a resilient little rodent. Harry's round eyes gazed pleadingly, but his chubby cheeks and innocent face couldn't soften my resolve. The morning's first lecture coincidentally on crime and punishment, caused me to reflect. Would ostracising Harry to the frozen wastes of a West London backyard deter him from committing future offences? No. Would it rehabilitate and reform him? Again, no. Could he make restitution for the damage done? Of course not. Was it retribution? Yes. Absolutely. Revenge, pure and simple, I was guilty of an act of wanton cruelty. A touch of self-loathing kicked in. It wasn't just the temperature Harry had to contend with. I suddenly remembered next door's mangy, malevolent moggy. If the worst happened, 
how could I live with myself? I raced home, vowing that if Harry was still alive, he'd get the mother of all welcomes. Hell, I'd even put the wheel back in his cage. For one night only, mind. I nervously unbolted the back door, praying I wasn't too late. Miraculously, he had found shelter under an old pile of bricks. That evening, snuggled cosily in the remnants of my sweater, Harry was recovering nicely, and my conscience was clear. I looked forward to a good night's rest, where, as Shakespeare observed, sleep would knit up the raveled sleeve of care. In the darkness, Harry's wheel cranked out its metallic lullaby, and with each rhythmic revolution, the sound morphed into a familiar woman's voice. Why aren't you wearing your new iron jumper? Why aren't you wearing your new iron jumper? How could I explain this to my mother, a skilled knitter, a woman who could spot a yarn a mile off, a woman over whose eyes no wool could ever be pulled, unlike her sleep-deprived son? How could I rest now? Harry had got his revenge. He had murdered sleep. I've driven 350 kilometres and tiredness is beginning to nag at the edge of my concentration. I struggle not to miss the turn onto my beloved peninsula which juts out into the Atlantic on our southern coast. I indicate and swing left, heading towards the sea. The road narrows as it hugs the shore, winding around coves and inlets, reaching out into the bay. With each turn, a new vista opens up of sea and land and sky. Colours change as high clouds sail by, fracturing the light in a myriad of ways. The tide is in, the sea a shimmering reflection of what's above. A heron rises over the seawall, flying just ahead of my car until something diverts it back out over the water. I'm nearly there. Another few twists and turns and I am home. Except I'm not home. Home is Dunleary in Dublin, the place where I've lived almost all of my life. Dunleary's in my bones. My history is knitted into the fabric of the town. My stories are held in the memory of the walls and the streets and the earth there. So how can this tiny hamlet of Ahakista in West Cork a place I've only known for six years, feels so much like home. Have I ancestors from this place? Have I belonged here long before I ever belonged to Dunleary? This tiny corner of West Cork seems to provide me with something I crave, something I can't explain, but something I need to experience regularly. Time is different here. 
languid days, strolling along meandering lanes that rise and fall through oceans of fern, stopping at field gates to talk to cows or perhaps a donkey. Hours spent on the little stony beach, watching the ebbing tide and bobbing boats in the cove. It is in Ahakista that I seem to make more sense to myself, that I am more serene, that I feel complete. This has happened to me before. A different time, a very different place, a different me. But that same feeling of belonging to somewhere that is not home. I was about 20 when I stepped down from a bus onto the street in Puerto de la Cruz, a town in northern Tenerife in the Canary Islands, and I was overwhelmed by that same feeling of homecoming. The narrow streets with overhanging wooden balconies, spilling words of rapid-fire Spanish from competing TVs, or coffee in the shaded square of the Plaza del Charco, surrounded by local families whose children played just beyond the fountain, all felt foreign, but yet strangely familiar. It feels a lot like falling in love, the recognition that something has shifted deep within, a sense that you are seen by this person or place in a way that is new and that is total. Puerto de la Cruz entranced me, charmed me, right from the start. I knew from that first visit that it would be a place I would return to regularly, and I did during my twenties and my thirties, sometimes twice a year. I did a lot of growing up in that town. Just like my beloved Dunleary, Puerto de la Cruz holds part of my story. We are bound together like former lovers who know each other, body and soul. I no longer feel the need to visit there as often as I used to. But every few years it whispers to my spirit, pulling me back, and I return. We have both changed. I am older, and it is quieter, but the years fall away when we are together. And now I have discovered that same curious magic here in West Cork too. It's in the bottomless blackness of the night. It's in the sound of the sea and the light in winter. It's even in the silence here, which at times is so total it's almost loud. I believe that very often people will arrive in your life just when you need them. Maybe there are places that do that too. Leaving these special places is never easy. A younger me cried each time I left Puerto de la Cruz, even though I knew I would soon return. And although I don't cry quite as easily now, my last night here in West Cork will be tinged with the sweet sorrow of reluctant parting. Home is not just the place where you live. Home is a feeling. It's a safe harbour to shelter from the storms of life. A place to recharge and rebalance. A place that accepts and seems to understand you. And as with love, you can find these places where you least expect them. But also like love, they are places that will become a part of you forever. When I wake up in the morning, I'm a hundred years old. My feet on the floor and I'm ninety-nine. A good hot shower and I'm looking at 80 after breakfast time, 79. Getting younger by the hour, gotta get home by midnight. It's a beautiful day, I'm 64 in my new red shoes. 
My kitchen is the dance floor. Lunchtime and I'm in my prime. 50 and I'm heading for 49. Getting younger by the hour. Gotta get It was a beautiful day in La Paz in January, the height of Bolivian summer. I was heading for La Valle de las Animas, the Valley of the Souls, a geological curiosity formed from volcanic rock whose name suggested magic and incantations and all sorts of things that the boy in me still relished from growing up on tales of adventure. Where the bus dropped me off, however, was hardly what you'd call mysterious. Instead, I found myself amidst rubble-strewn streets, half-built or falling-down houses clinging to the hillside. I trudged up and down steep cobbled paths in search of the entrance to the canyon. That was when the dog bit me. Stray dogs are everywhere in Bolivia. You can't avoid them. They bask in the noontime sun. They sleep in the doorways to shops, so you often have to step over them to enter. They roam in packs, chasing cars and minibuses, and the air is filled with the sound of barking and honking car horns. I remember one pooch in the jungle that refused to budge from the middle of the road, forcing our minibus to swerve out of its way. At last count, there are close to two million dogs wandering the streets and back alleys of the towns and cities of Bolivia. They are, for the most part, blithely ignored or occasionally indulged. Strictly speaking, not all of them are strays. Many are better described as semi-stray, left by their owners to walk the streets by day, foraging rubbish bins, before coming home to a bowl of kibble at night. They certainly don't look underfed or malnourished, and many look as pampered as any of the pooches you see being taken for a walk. Dogs have held a central place in South American culture for thousands of years, and were an important part of Inca tradition, both for safety and as pets. Perhaps this explains why the strays aren't seen as a nuisance. Indeed, in some neighbourhoods of La Paz, there are kennels on the path with bowls of food and water in front of them, marked para peritos de la calle, no robar, for the little street dogs don't steal. At first, it was something of a shock to see the streets full of strays. After a few days in the city, though, I was as used to them as any local. Which probably explains why, when an otherwise adorable spaniel-looking thing came hurtling toward me, teeth bared, I thought nothing of it. Until, that is, it sank those teeth through my trousers and into my leg. Two equally fearsome sounds filled the canyon entrance that day. The vicious snap and snarl of canine jaw on fabric and flesh, and a high-pitched, hardly human, hysterical shrieking noise. Imagine the sound of a yodeler in the Alps. Now bring the pitch up about four octaves and let it trail off key. That's an approximation of the noise that I produced. I'm not proud. It did the trick, though. The dog turned tail and bolted. Now, bleeding, alone, miles from anywhere, with the glory of the Valley of the Souls tantalisingly close, but the fear of rabies terrifyingly near, I hobbled back down the mountain in search of a minibus back to town. 
I can report that the Bolivian healthcare system, at least in my experience, is excellent. At the hospital, I was seen within 20 minutes. The staff were lovely. We communicated in mangled Spanish and hand gestures. Me mordido por un perro. I've been bitten by a dog. Dolor? asked the doctor. Does it hurt? Un poco, I replied. She cleaned my wound, assured me I didn't need stitches, and gave me a rabies shot. Everyone I met in Bolivia was incredibly friendly and polite. A pretty young woman, a fellow patient at the A&E, offered to help translate the myriad number of forms I had to fill in. In the end, I didn't get to the Valley of the Souls, but I did get a date. I should probably go back and offer that dog a treat to say thanks. Maybe not. Besides, I have a little mark on my calf now. Curved. It almost looks like a valley to remind me of that day. I grew up with a great grove for St Bridget. This affection was renewed every year by the tradition we maintained on the eve of her feast day. On the night of January 31st, my mother and I would leave out the broth or cloth for the saint's blessing. The belief was that Bridget, loosened from heaven that night, would walk the earth and bless the cloths. In some part of the country, the broth was a discreet, understated affair a scrap of white muslin or a cotton ribbon. This was a symbolic cloth linked to the idea of the saint's prodigiously spreading cloak, the one that covered the plains of her native Kildare and won her the land for her monastery from some mean old king who tried to trick her. We, however, had no truck with symbolism. We went the whole hog. We, like all of our neighbours on the road, left out an array of clothing on the hedges. Anyone walking up our road would think they had stumbled upon some nocturnal jumble sale. The chosen items would be something worn close to the site of our afflictions, current or lightly. My father's old grey vest would be spread on the hedge in the belief that Bridget's healing hands would ensure that his weak chest wouldn't come against him. Trousers would be included to carry relief to the arthritic knees, a cloth cap for the days when migraine or sorrow sent us to a darkened room. Our next-door neighbour, Bride Purcell, always said that women should leave out their corsets on Bridget's Eve. These corsets were fascinating contraptions, vintage girdles in shades of bandage pink. They were rigid and serious, with hook-and-eye detail and metal boning to hold each panel in unforgiving stiffness. I recall the relief in my mother's sigh as she eased off this merciless stricture. 
The women agreed that as the corset covered a multitude, it was a good idea to ensure that this garment carried Bridget's blessing. It would be pressed into service for many unstipulated afflictions. In addition to the specific garments, the vests, the corsets, the trousers, the cloth caps, we also left out a scarf, something we could apply to many wide-ranging ailments that might strike. This scarf was kept in the trunk upstairs with the good sheets and towels in case we had to call the doctor or priest to a sickbed. It was often taken out to soothe the agony of childhood toothaches. Since the dentist only visited once a month and set up his surgery over the butcher's shop, my swollen face was swathed in this fabric for many weeks at a time. The hairy material was knotted on the top of my head in a scratchy bow, as if to somehow contain the throbbing nerve pain through those weeks of suffering. From my school books, I knew Bridget to be an iconic figure who, born on the threshold between dark and dawn, became legendary for her hospitality to the beggars who'd hang around her father's dairy, cadging a bit of butter or a pail of milk. Everything she gave away multiplied and increased. She was the saint of lavish generosity who made her once-a-year intervention into our lives on the last night of January and attained the status of physician to the poor. She was our dentist, psychiatrist, obstetrician and GP when we shirked from a visit to the dispensary doctor who wasn't known for his bedside manner. Our connection with her went far beyond any pious association. She was the miracle woman from Kildare who felt along our box hedges in the dark of night. She took our random garments into her hands and wished us well. When we retrieved the clothing next morning, the morning of her feast on February 1st, a day fresh with the promise of spring, they were like folktale tropes airing before the fire on two chairs. The bank holiday to honour Bridget is well established on our calendar now. I'm sure she approves. Indeed, I'm sure she'd have a few recommendations on how we might spend the free day. She is, after all, the saint whose idea of heaven was an almighty hooli where a great lake of ale and a table of the best be available to all. So whether you're Biddy or Breda, Bridie or Bridgie, you have the saint's instruction to fill out white cups of love and jugs of mercy for all comers and every drop will be a prayer. This morning was a mixture of new and recent archive scripts. That Big Chair by Rebecca Hunter. The Oyster Catcher and St. Bridget was by Jenny Beale. Rohabyog on Seal, The Little Wheel of Life was by Peter Trant. Home from Home by Barbara Scully. Los Perros de la Paz by Niall McArdle. And St. Bridget Amongst the Box Hedges was by Margaret Galvin. The music today was Smile, composed by Charlie Chaplin and sung by Ruby Murray. Ode to Bridget by Blanche Rowan and Mike Gulston. Round and Round by The Searchers. Gotta Get Home by Midnight by Peggy Seeger. And Bolivia by George Drexler.
Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And just a reminder that an anthology of 150 scripts heard on the programme over the last few years is currently for sale in the shops. It's Sunday Miscellany, a selection, 2018 to 2023, and it's published by New Island Books. And you can find out more about it and other arts and culture RTE news on rte.ie slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.